This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security. There's been a lot going on here in Israel, and that's the understatement of the century. So we are here midweek trying to make sense of it all. We can't promise to succeed, but we can promise to try. This is an unholy special update. I'm Nate Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. It's unholy, two Jews on the news, this special update from Keshet Podcasts. I mean, where did we leave this? It feels like it was several centuries ago. It was only two or three days ago that we were last speaking, but huge drama. And this time, absolutely cut through. World was paying attention. This was leading, for example, BBC, but American networks. This was the story in the last few days. And these I mean, so much. But as you and I speak last night, Monday night, uh, finally, a statement from the Prime Minister, from Benjamin Netanyahu, saying, OK, time out, a pause. But in between, just these kind of epic scenes on Sunday night, which, again, went round the world, where people spontaneously, I think this is the important thing, there'd obviously been protests for 11, 12 weeks, but suddenly, spontaneously, late at night, people had work the next morning, 10, 11 at night, they are coming out flooding the streets. And, you know, people, I think, who've seen, you know, movies about revolutions, this is what it looked like. It was just huge and dramatic. But so much for us to go through and get into, Yoni. I, I, I'm, I, I'm hesitating where to begin, where to start, because really there has been so much news in the last 36 hours. We will get to the protests in a minute. I think you're right about them erupting and 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 really being this dramatic thing and slightly different from the protests we've seen in the past uh, 12 uh, weeks. But bottom line, and maybe we should begin with that, Netanyahu in this round lost. This was unconditional surrender after 12 weeks of unprecedented protests, international pressure, financial red flags, military reservists driving full speed against him. All this culminating in 24 hours that really I don't remember uh, being this dramatic uh, in this country. And all of it Netanyahu's doing right at the end of the day. This is value destruction of the highest order. Three months ago, minus one day, we were talking here about his jaw-dropping comeback, his homogenous coalition. There were questions about what kind of coalition this is and how uh, firm his hand is on the, the helm. But still, we thought that he had the power to do everything. And now, look at it. Three months later, country in chaos, opposition united against him, demonstrations like we've never seen, and he cannot pass the legislation which he promised to pass this week. He cannot pass it for now. So that is where we are. And now let's rewind 36 hours uh, back. We're talking here on Tuesday morning. So, of course, the disastrous strategic decision to fire Defense Minister Gallant why, everyone asked themselves, right, this final straw, why take a man who's a minister of defense, who has no claim to the throne, doesn't want to usurp Netanyahu, he just decided to say, look, I'm looking at the facts, I'm the defense minister, if you continue with this legislation, which, by the way, Gallant supports, right? If you continue with this legislation as it is, the military cannot uh, hold and we have to pause, right? This is what he he was begging to do. And Netanyahu decided to fire him. This, as you said, erupted in spontaneous protests 
all over Israel, including some of Netanyahu's supporters. I know this because they were texting our network saying, we're at the protest too because we're outraged uh, by it. And the way that it, you know, it wasn't the sort of family protests of, of, of every Saturday. This was young people they were enraged. In some cases, like in Jerusalem, they they ran through the blockades around the prime minister's office. They were burning things. I mean, this was really streets burning up and streets in chaos. And, and it looks like, you know, the leadership completely lost the direction and the control of it. I talked to you about the uh, bus that as many Israelis felt like they were off on a school bus and the driver left. Well, the continuation of that is that the bus went over the cliff. I've been talking for a while. I'm going to shut up now. <laughs> No, uh, you've got um, so much to impart and to tell us because you're there and you're going through all this. I mean, I would just say, just to underline this thing about the eruption on Sunday, I I think it's very hard to point to, you said, precedents in Israel. I think it's pretty hard to point to precedents anywhere. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the whole Trump period, you know, yes, there were huge organized demonstrations against him that would be planned several days in advance and there'd be a meeting point and buses and all that. The idea, as and I've read these accounts, I've been riveted by it, where people were getting WhatsApp messages at 10, 10, 15, 10, 30 on a Sunday evening. Remember, again, a working day, working work the next morning. Even in small towns, I mean, I've read these accounts of this, where WhatsApp groups would start far up of neighbours, of families saying, well, we're going out on the streets, what about you? And people doing that till 1, 2 in the morning. You know, if you're a Hollywood making a film about what revolutions look like, that's what it that's the form it takes mm-hmm. this was a pure eruption of anger and i would argue fear mm-hmm. because the notion of a defense minister easily the most important job in the cabinet in the israeli setup outside prime minister being fired for offering you know a dissenting view and again if you're sympathetic to him you think he was simply doing his job mm-hmm. saying I have to warn you, the red lights on the dashboard are flashing. I cannot guarantee the security of the country because I've got a fighting force, many of whom at the senior levels will not fight if this judicial coup, as they see it, go ahead. If he does that and is yet fired, I think a lot of people who perhaps were on the fence before or gave Netanyahu the benefit of the doubt and said, come on, let's not go over the top here. He's not uh, some autocrat in the making, I think you're all getting a bit hot under the collar. I think at that moment, they thought, well, maybe these warnings are right, and they had to rush out to stop it. Mm -hmm. And so that's a sort of epic moment. I wanted to just push back very gently on this idea that, you know, which I want to believe is true, I underline, that, you know, Netanyahu lost, and in a way, you know, this was a surrender. Because, yes, of course it was, he didn't get what he wanted. Absolutely. At first blush, that is what this is. He wanted to drive these things through. By Pesach was the original plan. By Everything. Passover, which is just pass a week all away. Of Everything. The, all of the plan. The whole thing. Right. The whole bundle was meant to have gone through by then, and it hasn't. So on, one, on, on the most fundamental level, you're absolutely right. This is a defeat. But I'm quite... Um, Struck by, and I saw it echoed by Amos Harel, the military affairs correspondent for Haaretz as mm-hmm. well, who said, you know, there is good reason, he wrote, to suspect that Netanyahu is only trying to lull the protest movement and the opposition, whittling away at the opposition to the proposed legislation while waiting for the next opportune moment. We will get into, I'm sure, a bit more, I think you hinted at it, that this has been just so badly handled, 
tactically a series of terrible decisions by Netanyahu from the beginning. The man who was always admired for the surety, the sureness of his political touch, made one bad move after another, for example, just driving this through, making no kind of public diplomacy, public information, PR case for the reforms, and but particularly, I would say, by bundling them up all together so you made yourself a big target for opposition. This, to me, I worry, looks like the first bit of tactical acumen, tactical nous by Netanyahu, because he's now going to get everyone quiet off the streets, always for protest movements. It's very hard to get people back out again. Mm -hmm. The momentum drains away. And I suspect he'll do this in salami slicing, bits of legislation on the, in themselves no one's going to go out onto the street for some tiny little technical thing. And he'll say, no, no, it's just one little thing. And it'll be a late night vote through a committee. And then weeks will pass. And then there'll be another little bit. And before you know it, the whole thing will have happened. But he won't have given the protests one big unifying, galvanizing target to rally against. And just the last thing I'll tell on this is this idea of dialogue. Because now, you know, some of the opposition will come into dialogue and talks with them. Others will say these talks aren't serious, we're not going to take part. And before you know it, what was a stunningly united movement of opposition where both workers from the historic the trade union movement and bosses were all on the same side, suddenly they could be split apart. So I'm not sure this is the white flag of surrender. I think and suspect it could be the first breakout of tactical good sense from Team Netanyahu. Um, there's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot. I have a lot to say. I'm um, just before that, someone told you, I think it was one of your Israeli friends, I can't remember who, who said three years, weeks ago that the legislation won't pass. Just saying. But, uh, but well, skip over that. And, uh, and I'll say this, look, first of all, is this just a smokescreen? Is Netanyahu, as you say, trying to lull the opposition and say, let's give it a few weeks? You know, Netanyahu's not ever solving a crisis, is just re-rolling it or repackaging it as a different kind of thing and coming back to it. He promised Itamar Ben-Gvir, by the way, that he will bring back the legislation in the next session of the Knesset. He actually said that in the press conference as well. He said between the next session, which starts in May and ends in August. Maybe. But I do want to bring you, Jonathan, numbers that are very important. And those are poll numbers. They came out yesterday. We published a poll asking Israelis after the crisis, right after the firing of, of uh, uh, Defense Minister um, Gallant and, and the, the protests that erupted. We asked uh, Israelis who they, they would vote for and what do they think. 60 percent, I'll just I'll, I'll get, give you the, the seats in the Knesset in a minute, but 60 percent of Likud supporters said that they support uh, stopping or halting the legislation. And more importantly, Netanyahu is paying a huge price for going forward with this legislation the way he did, meaning the Likud loses from 32 seats that it has today. In our poll, it's 25 seats. And possibly even more importantly, Gantz's party that is today 12 seats goes up, soars up actually to 23 seats. And that shows you that Netanyahu's even his very, you know, hardcore supporters are asking questions about these past three months. So when he wants to, or with the pressure, you said it's hard to reignite the protests. It's true. It's also very hard to reignite this legislation if he'll want to do it again in the next session. That's a question. And, and again, look, there are hundreds of thousands of Israelis who ran to the streets. The, the apparatus is there for the protests if they need to reignite. By the way, 
leaders of the protests are saying, we're not quieting down. We're not shutting down anything. We're continuing to continue to fight this because they think what you think, that this is just a smokescreen to lull the, the uh, opposition. I would want to say something about what it means to, do a, to, to make a compromise, but um, maybe we should say something about the main characters who are pulling the strings behind the scenes on the Netanyahu decision-making process, because the question and the really underlying question which you asked it as well, how is this ace politician managed to misread, miscalculate so completely the sentiment on the uh, Israeli in the Israeli street. And I think it's important to kind of say who are the people who were pulling the strings behind the scene, and then we'll talk about the option of a negotiation. Does that make sense? It does. No, I mean, so first off, absolutely right. Unholy listeners like me were advised by Yoni Levy some weeks ago that this package of reforms would not go through in its current form or on its current timetable. And on both those points, you, Yonit, have been wholly vindicated. And it was very reassuring to warriors like me to hear you say that. And absolutely, that those events have borne that out. And in fact, that was true even before what happened this week, because he'd already had to dilute it yeah. and was only down to this one element, etc. But still, the people got out there. Uh, this point about who are the people pulling strings, we really should drill down into that because mm-hmm. people who were following this were told, it even went back to the previous Thursday, that the Prime Minister was going to be speaking soon. And then he didn't come out in the way that we thought on last Thursday and say, yeah, it's paused. It then took the gallant resignation on Sunday night. Again, we were waiting for Netanyahu to speak. I thought, why doesn't he come and speak immediately? If you're going to announce a pause, do it now and get all the protesters off the streets. Why have a full day of general strike and airport closure, you know, Ben-Gurion shutting down? Normally, it's only a terror threat of incoming missiles that does that. Here, that threat was coming from inside. I thought tactically he would want to just shut it all down. And yet the hours went by. And what you and others were saying was there's a whole battle going on behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. This is where he is trying for one thing to make sure that when he does announce a pause, his coalition partners all stay with him and don't announce they are walking out of the government. That could have happened. But also we know, and you're going to talk us through it, I'm sure, that there were voices really tugging him mm-hmm. uh, away from the path of compromise, saying you've got to hold firm, you've got to maintain your stand. I think some of those interest me a lot, but why don't you talk us through who those siren voices were on, over his shoulder? So three men, essentially. One of them uh, is Yariv Levin, the architect of the judicial overhaul, the minister of justice, who for many, many weeks was saying, we are not losing ground on this. We will continue with the legislation. He was the first out of the three men I will describe to you who said yesterday morning, Monday morning, I will adhere to anything the prime minister, I will accept anything the prime minister decides, meaning you can decide that you are pausing the legislation. I won't leave the government. I'm with you. So that was that turned out to be the smallest of his uh, uh, problems. Two other main players here. One, and we must talk about the issue of, of Yair Netanyahu. This is not the realm of family gossip anymore. In political circles in Israel, he is definitely seen as a very influential part of the decision-making process by Benjamin Netanyahu. His Twitter page, his radio show, 
show you very clearly the thinking of this 31-year-old uh, man. These are the Steve Bannon areas of thinking, deep state, deeply incendiary comments. He said in this current crisis, the police are cooperating with the honor anarchists. He compared protesters to the SA, the paramilitary wing of the of Nazi Germany. He said, he went even as far as saying, by the way, that the uh, United States is, is funding the protests, trying to topple Netanyahu because they want to reach a, an agreement with Iran. I think in this, he was actually quoting a Breitbart Article. This is very deep into the rabbit hole, so I'm not. I'm try. I'm hesitant in trying to fall into that. But this is a very influential man in Netanyahu's uh, process and thinking process. And also, we should mention Itamar Benville. But I'm. I'm. I'm wondering if you may have one more, two more things to say about Yair Netanyahu before I talk about that. No, I think Yair Netanyahu is somebody worth of a, a real deep dive. In a future podcast, we should do that. Mm-hmm. Um, as you right, absolutely rightly say, this is beyond talk of sort of gossip from the court of Bibi Netanyahu and family chatter. Mm -hmm. He's a genuinely serious player in this political drama. The temptation from me and others was to see him as a Don Jr. figure, um, ridiculously extreme, but also a bit ridiculous, and not somebody who the principal takes that seriously was how, you know, it was easy to fall into that. I mean, I don't think Donald Trump, for example, takes Don Jr. terribly seriously. But this is different from that. He is so extreme. You mentioned Steve Bannon. I think he goes beyond Steve Bannon. He's really one of the most extreme figures around in this kind of constellation of right-wing politics. I mean, the uh, comparing, you know, the young families and mums and dads and fighter pilots who are out protesting about this to the Nazis is coming from a, you know, an Israeli. It's extraordinary the things he says. But none of that would matter were it not for the fact that Netanyahu clearly listens to him. His father clearly listens to him. And so when it was obvious and sensible for him to call a halt to this thing, he wasn't doing it. And the reporting that I've read suggests that's because his son was saying, don't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got to stand up to these people. Quite what that hold is, you'd need a sort of, you know, Dr. Freud to help us. But something is going on there that, and it re- requires serious attention. As far as the others are concerned, the holding him back, this is a narrative that is, you know, I oscillate between this prisoner of the right analysis that, you know, Bibi Netanyahu can't move because Yeriv Levin and Itamar Ben-Gavir won't let him, because I think in a way it lets Netanyahu off the hook. But there's definitely something in there that Netanyahu is not the man we knew before. He is weaker mm-hmm. and he has this room for manoeuvre. The last thing I was just saying, because I think we must get into Ben-Gavir specifically and his price for continuing to support the Prime Minister. But just on Yeriv Levin, it just amazes me I'd love to know more about what hold he has on Netanyahu because he has led him into such a disaster in just in purely purely the politics of this. I mean, you've read us out the the poll numbers. The you know Netanyahu is somebody who for uh, for his long career, despite his very kind of bellicose person personality and his reputation around the world, is quite cautious as a politician. He is usually not moved. You know in his supporters point that on the international stage, or rather in terms of Israel's neighbours, he has been less likely to send Israeli troops into action than any other prime minister. He's a wary figure who makes sure that he's more or less in tune with public opinion. That's why he keeps winning mm-hmm. historically, and why he is the longest serving Israeli prime minister. 
his touch absolutely deserts him. If you have alienated, you know, the bosses and the workers and you've shut down the hospitals and the airport and the families and the fighter pilots and special forces and your own defence minister, you've messed up somewhere. Mm -hmm. Who You would be looking around the room thinking, who's the genius who led me into this hole? And the answer is this extremist, Yariv Levin, I'm saying if you're in the mind now of a normal politician, that's what you'd be thinking, get that guy out of the office. I don't want to listen to him ever again. It's like Liz Truss and her Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng, who led her into this kamikaze budget that tanked the economy. You'd say, I'm never listening to a word that guy says again. Why is Netanyahu listening to these people when it's tanking his own political standing? Well, I think that's probably the most important question uh, in the last couple of days. Netanyahu understands, maybe he didn't understand the public sentiment, but he understands politics and he understands the Likud politics. And whereas Yoav Gallant has absolutely no base of followers in the Likud, Yariv Levine does. He doesn't have, how shall we say this, charisma beyond the charisma of the accountant, one should say, but it doesn't matter. There are a lot of people. I reckon quite a few of our listeners might be accountants. So I don't want to hurt their feelings, <laughs> but I know what you mean with Yariv Levin. Why would you think our listeners are accountants? I don't know. That that seems like a strange conclusion to arrive at. Um, but um, but so Yariv Levin has a strong base of support. If I'm not mistaken, he was he won the first place in the Likud primaries. A lot of people inside the Likud support what he's saying about judicial uh, reform. And he didn't want to alienate, Netanyahu didn't want to alienate that group. Does he now think that uh, he led him down a very wrong path? I assume he does. But still, he doesn't want to upset that base. That's why it made sense that when Yariv Levin came out last Monday morning and said, I will agree to halt, essentially, that's what he said then that made sense and Netanyahu would then uh, follow suit. But that is why he's listening to him. Also, very close to him. I, you know, for many, many years, this is his trust, most trusted advisor, the person who did all of his uh, backroom dealing for him. So they're very, very connected. And I think that explains some of it. Now, let's say something about Itamar Ben-Gvir, right? The uh, minister of national security, who Netanyahu, I remind you, did everything in his power not to be seen with him in the same photograph before the elections, and now is one of the strongest people in his coalition. He threatened, first of all, he called to fire Yoav Gallant after what Yoav Gallant said about Israel's security, but he also threatened to leave the coalition if Netanyahu indeed halts the legislation. Netanyahu decided, in turn, because he needs to keep his coalition together, to promise uh, Ben Gvir two things. One, that the legislation will eventually pass, and two, and this is very important to create what is we call Hamishmar Alumi, a national guard, a second police force, if you will, that will be under the jurisdiction, not of the police, but of Itamar Ben-Gvir himself. This is nothing less than a scandalous decision by Netanyahu. I will, uh, spoiler alert, raise a question if this will actually happen. But this is definitely a huge prize for Itamar Ben-Gvir to stay mute in this case of, of halting the legislation. This, by the way, is the element that has been picked up around the world mm, um, where there's just a chilling association with a private militia attached to a man of the far right who has himself a criminal record of incitement to racism and support for terror organizations. This is a pyromaniac, and Netanyahu has just handed him an extremely large right. box of matches and a you know tank full of gasoline. 
whatever else comes out of this, this to me is chilling. Again, I've seen a lot of the commentary saying, ah, it's not going to happen. Who's going to ever join this thing? Well, we saw some of these counter protests for the first time on Monday, where groups like you know, La Familia and La Hava, these really ultra-right groups, some of them associated with the Beitar Football Club, often, you know, track record of, again, their own record of violence and racist violence. These are, I, I think there's going to be no shortage of recruits to Ben Gvir's private army. But I think you have to go back to really the early principles of the founding of the state and the Altalena episode, in which David Ben-Gurin is ready to fire on his fellow, you know, new Israelis, because the right wing, the precursors or the forerunners of today's Likud party, had their own ship with weapons on it, and he sank it. He ordered that ship sunk, and it was seen as a big moment in the history of the country because there must be a state monopoly on violence. The power of force has only got to be in the hands of the government. Now, people will say to me, yeah, well, this National Guard is still going to be in the hands of the government. Really? If this is his private army, loyal to him, which is what it will be, are we confident that this just stands down and disarms the day Ben Gvir is no longer a minister or is the, the, his side lose an election? I don't, I'm not confident of that at all. This is the guy who does not play by Marquis of Queensbury rules. And this is an incredibly dangerous and terrifying move. Um, we know from other countries and other moments in history what happens when figures of the ultra-nationalist, far-right, have a military or paramilitary force that is loyal to them. And I think whatever else is decided through this so-called compromise, this is one to, that chills the blood, as far as I'm concerned. And especially if you add to that, if you just walk in your mind a few weeks forward in the future and you say, okay, what if the legislation does actually make a comeback and the protests make a comeback? And then what you have is Benville's National Guard trying to deal with these protesters and not the police, which, by the way, we should say, was quite careful in its treatment of protesters in the street. So this is where a lot of people in Israel are going and asking themselves. I again, I need, I need to just say that we are in a in a period of so much uncertainty. I'm not sure, you know, Netanyahu obviously doing everything in his power to keep his coalition together, which means his coalition has many reasons or, or, or in many ways can fall apart. So I'm not sure if the end of the, the equation here is that he actually gets this because there would be huge pushback, not only from the Israeli public, but also from the defense echelon that everyone, you know, thinks that this is a catastrophic idea, then I don't know if this will actually happen. But I, I agree with you that the intent to do it is a problem in itself. Now, I want to, we're dancing around this topic, but I think it's very important to talk about, and this this still connects to Itamar Ben-Gvir, to talk about the sentiment of the Israeli public, not only the protesters who, who flooded the streets in the past 12 weeks, but of the other side. I think it's really important to say where this leaves is well, this whole thing leaves Israel. Because if you want to get into the minds of the people on the right who wanted this reform, right? We talked a lot about the groups, different groups who who want to weaken the Supreme Court. The group that is an ideologue that are ideologues that believe that the Supreme Court needs to change the balance, it's too powerful, has too much powerful power in Israel. That group feels, and I think it's important to say, they feel like they've been cheated. They feel like for the first time. 
They have a majority. They could have run this through the Knesset. And now again, the elites, right? I'm saying this with a quotation, with quotation marks, but the elites won them. And I do want to read to you, Jonathan, I think it's important because Itamar Ben-Gvir, besides other things you can say about him, is a true populist who understands where the sentiment of his own public is. And I wanted to read to you the tweet that he tweeted after, or right before Netanyahu actually capitulated, because I think it's important. He wrote this. He wrote, something happened in Israel today. The votes of the pilots are worth more than the votes of Golani, the combat soldiers, troops on the ground. The votes of Tzahala, northern Tel Aviv, are worth more than the votes of Dimona and the Negev, southern Israel. And the votes of the high-tech sector are worth more than the blue-collar workers' votes are worth. This is the sentiment he is going to be playing on. And this is the sentiment that you're going to see. First of all, it's true. It's a real sentiment. You're going to see because you're going to see the people saying the pilots use their privilege. The high-tech sector use their privilege. The people who live in the northern part of Tel Aviv use their... This is not... I'm not saying this is factually correct. I'm saying this is what the sentiment of the people on the other side are. This is why you saw them yesterday, tens of thousands of them protesting for the reform in Jerusalem. And this is important because you're talking about where the Israeli public is left after this. Is there a possibility for some sort of negotiation that will reform a little bit of the power of the Supreme Court, but also enshrine the Bill of Rights and some sort of constitution uh, for Israel? I'm not sure. This sounds like a pipe dream today. But, but it's important not to ignore this particular sentiment. And tonight, since I did read to you the tweets he wrote, if I may Right, at least read out the response written by Mirav Cohen, who's a member of parliament from Yair Lapid's party, just because it's, it's a good response. So I would read it out to you. She said, you don't represent Golani. You weren't even drafted because you were a member of a terror organization. Kach, of course. You don't represent the Negev. You lived in Hebron your whole life and you hung a picture of a mass murderer in your living room. And you don't represent blue collar workers. You're only a lawyer who represented extreme settlers and people who burned villages. So that's just for the commentary on the other side. You see, that reminds me of the words that Ilana Diane spoke to us mm -hmm. last week when she said, I'm not sure you've, you, this genie can go back in the bottle. Mm -hmm. The divisions that have been opened up by this, the sense that there are two Israels and it's very hard to see how the two can gel again back into one country. I mean, in a way, what we jokingly talked about right at the start about how fast the news cycle moves. Maybe there's some hope in that, in that Israel being Israel, everything will, something massive and interesting and new will happen and we'll all be swept on to the next thing. And before you know it, this will sort of be not quite forgotten, but in the rearview mirror, maybe. But otherwise, the worry is something has been opened uh, and broken that can't be just stuck back together again. Um, that the resentment of the people who do the fighting and pay the taxes being branded somehow the elite by people and you see it in microcosm in that exchange you just read out there by the people who in you know in the case of the ultra orthodox don't you know serve in the military and there are people who are economically inactive who are nevertheless telling the other side how they should be organized i don't know it was not for nothing did the president of the country warn of a civil war Mm -hmm. And that was out there a lot in the last few weeks. And there is a pause, a cessation in hostilities now, so that the country can have Pesach, Passover, and Independence Day. And, and so Memorial, on. Day. Memorial Day. Memorial Day, which Memorial is Memorial Day, to very be, important. Yeah. Together, 
But I feel there's a different atmosphere. And, the, you know, Israel goes into its 75th anniversary. You have to say, in a, in a more divided, more fragile state than, again, drawing on our guests in previous weeks, it was them who said this, not me, mm -hmm. in a more fragile, more perilous state than perhaps ever in that 75-year history. So, you know, there, it's very easy to get into the immediate politics of the hour, about who's in and who's out and who's up and down in polls, the arguments, the people on the streets. But the big picture point here, I fear, is that the country is just desperately and deeply divided. And some, and that was true for many, many years, but some bitterness has come into that now, new bitterness, which I think is is going to be very hard to, to dissipate. And, um, you know, I, bl I blame, by the way, very, very directly the people in charge. I don't think... Um, you know, anyone else should be blamed for that. The people who drove this thing through in this way, rather than trying to build a national consensus for it, this is on them. But now that it's happened, I don't know how easily you put it back together. Look at us elevating everyone's mood on a Tuesday morning. <laughs> it's our public service that we do. We, we aim to please and we, provide we it. Please just to ruin your mood on Shabbat. Now we wanted to ruin your uh, your mood on Tuesday Mid as well, dear, dear listeners. Yes. That's fine. I think we it's did a wrap around that. Service. I think we quite... <laughs> it's a wraparound service we provide. Um, we haven't done our usual chutzpah and mensch thing that we normally do like to do for you. I, I, you know, if we were, I would be nominating chutzpah, particularly to Bibi Netanyahu for his interview with Piers Morgan, no, really? um, uh, okay. you know, who's here in London. Uh, he doesn't do many interviews these days, Netanyahu, but he did do one with Piers Morgan that went out on Monday, they had to bring it forward because they were worried it was going to become very out of date. But I just love this thing where he said it was really bad that his hands were being tied by the Attorney General. You know, Israel is going through the most acute crisis in many years, he said. And it's important that the Prime Minister has to deal with this and try and bring a resolution to this crisis. It's wrong that I cannot speak about this, cannot try to resolve this issue, cannot take care of the security of the country. It's a, This is very bad. You know, somebody was preventing him from solving this fire that I don't know who it was who started it, but I'm the obvious firefighter. I must rush to aid people. When the arsonist is posing as a firefighter, <laughs> that for me is a slam dunk winner of the chutzpah of the uh, of the week award. I think an, the a nominee for Mensch of the Week would have to be no less than you, Yonit Levy, for A, predicting this would happen, and B, being basically up all night, um, successive night, Sunday and Monday, as you were broadcasting to a nation that was on the edge of its seat and telling them and probably offering a voice of calm as all this was going on and telling them what they desperately needed to know, which was what was happening in their country. So how about that? Netanyahu wins one award, Yoni Levy wins the other. I think that's my uh, offer for this week, but it's not a full episode, so it's not a full chutzpah and mensch. That's my, just my tentative offering to close out our little update episode for this week. I'm waiting for my check in the mail. I'm waiting for my check. So that was our special update. We will thank uh, Gaia Glazer and Omer Primat and Romatic and Yair Bashan. And uh, this was not in anywhere our 100th episode, which will happen regularly on this Friday, which will be a special episode. Okay. Yeah, we, we will see you for the official, official 100th episode. This was just 99 A or B, depending on how you count. Um, we'll see you at the end of this week, just a few days away uh, for the big one for our 100th episode with a very special guest.
This podcast is brought to you by Cyber attacks can be prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security.